0: This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Roman Ring is a research engineer at DeepMind. Roman, um, I want to thank you for taking the time to be here today. Thanks so much.
1: Uh, Thank you so much
0: for having me. So can you tell us a bit about the research engineer role at DeepMind?
1: Yeah, so research engineering in general is a somewhat recent concept. I think it came to be as a response to increasing software complexity of machine learning projects, um, and research scientists just couldn't do them on their own. But then even if uh, software engineers were hired, there is this gap in background knowledge between the two. So you would have this situation where you would have really knowledgeable research scientists and talented software engineers, but um, nobody to uh, bridge the gap between the two, so to say. So then being an RE is uh, somewhat like a jack of all trades kind of deal, or maybe even more of a spectrum where uh, you have pure research on one side and uh, engineering on the other. And then individual REs can choose where they stand. I'll be honest, um, even at DeepMind, the difference between REs and software engineers and sometimes even research scientists is uh, somewhat blurry. So there are research scientists that are really talented software engineers and vice versa. Um, but at least during hiring, I think the difference comes down to expectations. So an RE would be expected to know uh, why do you need important sampling in Impala, whereas a uh, software engineer should um know h- how various all-reduced algorithms uh stack up. I think the cool thing about research engineering and what maybe a lot of people don't realize is that um you don't need a PhD uh to get a job at an industry lab. So uh un- it's enough to have a master's for an RE position. And uh, yeah I, I there's just a lot of discussions on Reddit where a person who clearly indicates he has no interest in academia um, and asks if uh, what are his potential career trajectories. And then people would come in and say, well, if you want to do research, you have to have a PhD. Um, but in reality, that's not the case, even for private industry uh, labs like DeepMind.
0: So for you personally, what do you feel are the most interesting parts of the uh, research engineer role?
1: Um. So in a lot of ways, engineering, research engineering right now is like the wild west. Um, there's a lot of things that are still not figured out and people are trying all sorts of wacky ideas uh, from like low level compiler um, side to huge software architectural projects. And um, I came into machine learning from web development where I think a lot of these things are already figured out and so at a certain point in your career you're just basically going through the motions even if you're starting a project from the ground up and in ML basically nobody knows what are the best things so you have this freedom of choice uh, freedom to explore things and I think not many people realize that some of the major research breakthroughs like AlexNet or recent GPT-3 uh, were done m- mainly through engineering efforts. So in AlexNet, they actually used the architecture that was like from the 90s, LeNet, with some modifications, of course, but still the core is LeNet. Uh, and what drove the achievement was the custom CUDA kernels. And then GPT-3 is literally just GPT-2 with some minor changes and um, what obviously drove the results was the enormous scale that they had.
0: So what do you feel are like the biggest challenges for engineering at this point? Are there another like bottlenecks uh, in progress um, of engineering?
1: Uh, yeah, so the Wild West aspect of it can also act as a double-edged sword. Um, basically, since nobody knows what's the best way to do things, then There's uh, some duplicated or even wasted efforts happening. Um, You can spend quite a bit of time going in a direction that's basically fruitless.
0: So you submitted an impressive bachelor's thesis on StarCraft agents uh, when you were at University of Tartu in Estonia. Is that right? Uh, Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that thesis?
1: Um, Yeah, so this goes back to, like, early 2000s when I first discovered uh, StarCraft 1. And I immediately fell in love with the complexity of the game. Um, even though at the time I, I had no idea I would be working in AI, I actually was initially planning to work on... to be a translator from English to Russian. Anyway, so when I discovered the game, I already back then uh, was thinking um, what it would take to like have a computer program play the game and i also saw that um in the first version of starcraft even the built-in ai um not even the one that you play against but the one that like drives uh, units um things like pathfinding it was really inefficient so that was an indication to me that this game would probably be a major challenge for ai and then so when i went back to university, and arrived at a point where I would have to do a thesis, um, my mind immediately went back to StarCraft. And I guess it was just really lucky that uh, specifically, at the deadline, where, where I had to decide on a project, DeepMind released their PyC2 API library. And um, yeah, the choice was obvious then. Um, at first, I had uh, really ambitious ideas where I would um, replicate the results that DeepMind uh, released, uh, so some initial results, and then build a, build some research on top of that. But um, basically, since the initial paper that came out with the library didn't have any source code, and you had to replicate the architecture yourself, uh, that was quite difficult for me as a junior researcher. So in the end, uh, I uh, settled on just being uh, as close to the deep mind uh, results and architecture as possible. Um, One side challenge with my undergrad was that it was actually uh, in statistics. So a major source of stress for me was whether I would be able to prove to a room full of um, like hardcore mathematics and statistics people that what I did wasn't just play video games for half a year. And I had to be, <laughs> yeah, and I had to be really careful with every mathematical definition I bring up. And I think that actually in the end played a major role in my fundamental understanding of RL. Um, yeah, since I had to be really careful uh, and know my, my, my things.
0: Okay, I really enjoyed uh, going through your thesis. I think it's uh, an incredible, incredible effort, especially at the bachelor for anybody, but especially at the bachelor level. Um, So, StarCraft has some interesting properties as an environment. Um, Can you can you um, talk us through what makes StarCraft uh, especially interesting and challenging?
1: Yeah. All right. So the game itself is a real-time strategy video game. Um, What that means is that um, you have to Combine long-term and short-term planning to basically build up your army and then uh, figure out what's the best timing to attack your opponent and win the game. Um, A layer of complexity on top of that is that there are three distinct races uh, in the game, each with its own unique mechanics. Um, So from an RL perspective, the obvious challenge is that the state and action spaces are basically infinite for practical purposes. And this dwarfs the typical board games like chess and go. In fact, uh, I think you could probably add a chess game as part of StarCraft and it wouldn't really affect things much at this point. Um, yeah. <laughs> then there's a uh, fog of war. Uh, which is a big part of the game. Basically, what it does is um, it hides information about opponent's units and buildings from the player uh, unless he has uh, his own units nearby. This makes information a really critical resource in the game. And tournament games are often won with, um, so to say, metagaming, where players would do all sorts of things to um, avoid giving up on information or giving wrong information to the opponent. Also, the games lasts for thousands of steps. So, if you assign a reward only on the last step, uh, as is done for AlphaStar, then this makes the environment um, have really, really long uh, sparse rewards. Um, finally, one major challenge when playing versus uh, humans is that the winning strategies are not non-transitive. Um, Basically, there is no single optimal policy that would work best. It's more like a really high dimensional rock, paper, scissors.
0: So I think there were two uh, DeepMind StarCraft papers before the 2019 Nature paper. Um, one introducing the StarCraft environment and then the relation, relational RL1, is, is, that, is that right?
1: Yeah, so the first one, um, as you said, this one was released alongside the c 2 environment. Um And then, yeah, the other one was relational uh, reinforcement learning. But the funny thing is about that one is that it was done basically in parallel to AlphaStar. And it was led by a separate group of people um, with some advisory help from the AlphaStar team. Um, but while it did showcase StarCraft as a research environment, it didn't really build up to the final agent in the end.
0: Okay, so for, before we get into that nature paper, can you help us, uh, like set the stage for where StarCraft RL agents were, um, kind of just at high level before that nature paper came out?
1: Uh, sure. So outside of StarCraft 2, uh, there's also, um, really active community of StarCraft 1 research. But, um, at least at the time of, um, when AlphaStar started gaining traction, they were still using fairly basic uh, machine learning approaches. I'm not sure even if anybody used RL successfully. There is also the StarCraft II AI community, which focuses mainly on handcrafted uh, bots, uh, which which are then pitted against each other in regular tournaments. They're actually quite good, and some could even win versus human players. But of course, they suffer from the usual drawbacks of handcrafted, uh, engineering. For the Alpha Star itself, it went really quickly from basically playing on the self-contained mini games to pro level. Um, I think the paper itself was, the initial paper was released in something like 2017. And then for quite a long time, um, DeepMind tried to do things from scratch, Tabula Rasa, so to say. And uh, that is with pure RL. And that didn't quite work out in the end. Um, but anyway, basically by December 2018, they already had a, or, or was it January 2019? Um, they had the show match versus pro players um, that um, while the Alpha Star won, um, many people still thought that um, it wasn't quite uh, fair. So the agent used way too many actions. And also, it was uh, playing just one race on one map. Um, but then, um, so that was in, let's say, January 2018. And then the agents described in the Nature paper were basically locked in, in like June or July. So that's basically half a year of, of uh, difference.
0: So you co-authored that Nature article uh, titled Grandmaster Level in StarCraft Two Using Multi-Agent Reinforcement Learning. Uh, by Vignals et al. So, can you give us a short uh, overview of, of that paper?
1: All right. So, this paper describes a machine learning based agent um, which reached a fairly high level of play in StarCraft, though unfortunately it didn't dominate the scene like AlphaGo. Um, it's initialized with supervised uh, pre training and fine tuning from human data, and then followed by multi agent RL training loop. Um, and, uh, this loop prioritizes opponents that were hardest to beat. Um, the agent, uh, neural network architecture, um, was built to handle multimodal inputs and outputs. Um, and at the time, I think it was the first, um, RL agent that combines convolutional recurrent and transformer layers in, in like one big chunk. Um, the training was done through a leak training system to deal with this rock-paper-scissors effect I mentioned. Basically, the league contains a set of main agents, the agents whose only person is to beat these main agents, and the agents that are encouraged to follow some strategy that often leads to quick wins. Um, They're called cheeses in the community. Uh, then over time, this league is populated with checkpoints of, um, older checkpoints of these agents. And, uh, basically the goal of the main agent is, of course, to win against the whole league. Um, and that eventually leads to somewhat generalizable, um, agents. Um, another major focus, as I mentioned, was, uh, ensuring that playing conditions are as fair as possible. Um, and then, I mean, sure. You could say that uh, the only fair test would be if you had a robot that's sitting next to a monitor, looks at uh, the game from raw pixels, and then controls keyboard and mouse. But aside from that, I think AlphaStar had a relatively fair setup, and um, I think most of the regular players agreed with that. Um, the Paper itself is actually a combination of uh, several individual research ideas uh, that could probably easily get into top conference papers um, on their own. These ideas are like um, upco, uh, upgoing uh, uh, gradients, upgoing policy gradients, uh, which basically is a really simple modification on top of the usual critic loss that uh, helps quite a bit with um, learning from the right actions um i'm I'm actually surprised that uh, people still didn't uh, decouple these ideas out of the paper and haven't tried them out in their own um, environments or regions
0: Can you say a bit about your your own role in the paper
1: uh yeah well I mean the project lasted something like four years uh, so but the to- by the time I joined it was basically right at the end of it and uh, obviously I couldn't have a major impact on something fundamental like uh, make architectural changes or um, do novel research ideas but I've helped with uh, general engineering in the Alpha Star League that I described I've uh, also helped analyze the results of the millions of games the agents played and I added a couple of small paragraphs in the paper itself um, so while my impact maybe wasn't that peak. Uh, I did learn uh, a lot during this process um, and uh, during this internship. And uh, yeah, it helped me a lot to start off my uh, full-time uh, project uh, on the right foot.
0: Uh, do you want to share about uh, what parts of the agent you find personally most uh, most interesting?
1: <laughs> Honestly, that it learned anything at all is mind-blowing to me. Uh, I, w- I would never <laughs> have thought that a single a relatively small neural network handle uh, such an environment on a high level of play, I I would always uh, say that, uh, yeah, sure, AlphaGo beat Go, but to play StarCraft, uh, something major would have to be uh, introduced. Uh, And here we have a single network playing uh, three different races across four different maps, across many, many variations of strategies. But if I had to point to something specific, I would say that would be uh, forcing the agent to use camera to attend to game events um it it maybe doesn't sound like much but seeing it play in action and actually make these choices to attend to different uh events and make decisions based on that um i'm not saying it's agi or anything and i know that under the hood it's basically just metrics multiplications but still that that was like a really weird feeling uh it's almost like looking at something that's doing reasoning on some level.
0: So do you think that a uh, model-based um, approach for a future agent for StarCraft would ever be possible or, or could be a good idea?
1: <laughs> um, sure, that could be promising, but uh, maybe not the full dynamics model, um, rather some latent representations. Though, Then you would have to consider why you're doing that. I mean it, it can definitely it won't the worse, so it, it would definitely improve Alpha Star's performance, but um that would take even more resources to train. And well personally it would be fun to see AlphaStar um clearly beat top players and achieve this Alpha Go style of victory. I I don't see how this could be the only goal. Um so you would have to have some research um reason to do it and i don't really see one
0: uh so i i mean i remember when the uh, starcraft environment first came out and it was um in the description in the paper it sounded like a lofty distant goal to build agents for this for the full starcraft game and then it was seemed like a very short time later that uh the grandmaster level paper came out so i th- can can i ask like do you was that um was that timeline expected? Were you surprised by how quickly um, they got to that level, uh, or your your team was able to get to that level? And um, yeah, and and is StarCraft uh, going to be a challenge for f- f- uh, going forward for a long time, like Atari was?
1: Um, yeah. So I was definitely surprised to um, reach that to see that result uh, achieved. Um, I, I do have to clarify that um, uh, nobody is claiming that uh, StarCraft is solved. So even though AlphaStar beats 99.8% of players, uh, the last 0.002% are probably the hardest to beat um, and, and it would take quite a bit of effort to, to reach 100%. Um, so in that sense... Um, the environment itself is definitely still, um, an open research question. Um, but realistically speaking, it does, uh, take a lot of resources to, um, to solve, so outside of like big industry labs, uh, I'm not sure how feasible it is to do research on it. Um, that's from RL perspective from something like imitation learning perspective. There's definitely um, room for research for both big and small research labs. So I, I would be personally really interested to see um, other people try to replicate uh, at least the Alpha Star imitation parts. Uh, that would still reach like top 80 to top 90% of the human players.
0: So in some ways, um, the OpenAI Dota to work seems to be, be a bit of a parallel uh, world to the StarCraft work from DeepMind. Can you, um, do you have any thoughts on comparing and, and contrasting uh, these two projects?
1: Yeah, sure. So both uh, were really interesting projects from engineering perspective. Um, um, the, so as a research engineer, I think OpenAI 5 was definitely really cool achievement and uh, even though i don't play dota myself i can appreciate that the level of complexity of the game is probably on par with uh, starcraft they um so i have to i have to clarify that i do think that it's a really cool uh result but they did use some things differently like they didn't focus on making the game fair between the agent and the humans they also did a lot of, um, reward shaping. So, um, whereas Alpha Star was trained purely on, well, basically purely on the win-loss signal. Um, and yeah, and, and the, I guess this goes for both results, but neither Alpha Star nor OpenAI5 actually achieved like this, uh, clear milestone of beating humans. So, in that sense, both environments are still open research problems.
0: So, if we step back a bit and look at the earlier generation of D-Mine agents, like the DQN and, and the AlphaGo, and then if we compare them to the current more genera- the more recent generation of agents like Agent Fifty Seven, AlphaStar, and MuZero, um, I guess the new ones are a lot more complex. Um, do you think that that trend will just continue um, over the next few years? Uh, these agents getting just uh, way more complex Uh, or what do you what do you think agents might look like uh, like in a few years
1: from now Uh, well to be fair the modern agents tackle way more difficult tasks than something like original dkn i mean yeah sure agent 57 is still playing the same atari but the so to say the league they're playing is completely different Uh, agent 57 has to beat Uh, human baseline by a wide margin on all of the 57 games. Whereas the original DQN failed miserably at like half of them. Um, So uh, as far as the research direction, I can see it go either way. Like uh, obviously having simpler agents uh, achieve similar results on current environments is worthwhile. And at the same time, having more complex agents um, achieve uh, good results on more complex environments is also a good direction.
0: So as you mentioned, like with GPT-3 was just basically a scaled up version of GPT-2. Um, could there be a lot of progress to be made just by scaling up existing methods or, um, or do we really need new methods?
1: Um, yeah. Again, either direction could work. Um, there's still this problem in RL where deep networks don't really work. Um, up to like a couple of years ago, the best network that you could use is the three-layer ConvNet, basically. Then ResNet came and somewhat improved that. And even like the most complex uh, architectures like AlphaStar and OpenAI five, they're um, they're complex from architectural perspective, but um, they're really shallow compared to something like GPT three. Uh, so I'm not sure if um, this is um, this could be improved if you just scale it really really uh, a lot by a lot. But um, I would probably guess that something more fundamental has to happen. Either a new um, neural network layer or something in the rL agents themselves so
0: we talked about a few different families of agents um do you see do you think these different families of agents will like continue bifurcating splitting into different uh subfamilies or do you or do you see maybe these lines of work uh converging uh merging at some point
1: <laughs> well i mean I'd love to see it like uh unifying string theory type of thing that would combine all of these algorithms into one. But at this point in time, I think we're barely in the Newton's physics era. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think right now it's, it's just worthwhile to explore different directions. Um, then again, we do advance much quicker than physics, uh, from 1600s. So who knows? Um, Also, maybe we'll get an AGI from some different direction and then just ask it to solve RL for us.
0: So do you think that uh, people will be coding agents in like TensorFlow or JAX or or PyTorch um, for the foreseeable future?
1: Yeah, um, so in short, JAX is a library that um, exposes a set of so-called program transformations like Grad or JIT on top of NumPy like API, and this all runs really efficiently on GPU and TPU. So if you like NumPy, you would love JAX. And in that sense, I think JAX would shine the more off the beaten path your research goes, because you can just try it with NumPy. And yeah, basically, the further your ideas get, the better JAX would suit you. And in that sense, I think it would be beneficial for RL context, um, uh, whether it would be uh, Jax, TensorFlow, PyTorch, down the line, I'm not sure, maybe it's something like Swift for TensorFlow finally comes through. Um, but yeah, I think this goes back to the initial question of uh, why I like engineering, and that's, nobody has it figured out. So um Yeah, I, I actually don't know what will happen in like two years, maybe we'll have another framework. And that's what's keeping it exciting for me. Um, by the way, I, I have to say, I see a lot of discussion on Reddit that TensorFlow is basically dead, and Google is moving everyone to JAX. And uh, that's just not true, because TensorFlow has a lot of things figured out that Jack's core devs just don't have the time for. So I think, I mean, I'm not speaking for Google, obviously, but I think as far as things go, I don't think TensorFlow will go away anywhere anytime soon in that sense.
0: Okay, so maybe aside from which specific framework is used, but um, do, you, do you think that we'll, that that people will continue to make agents by hand uh, for the foreseeable future?
1: Um, <laughs> I mean, maybe AGI will solve this for us. But uh, aside from that, I think there's no harm in having conductive biases, and uh, I, I, I don't see the reason why we should avoid using them, um, especially right now. So uh, there's also directions like neural architecture search, but um, that that's that takes even more um, compute resources than normal RL. So, yeah, I think for the foreseeable future we'll be coding these agents' algorithms by hand.
0: Do you think that uh, Python will remain de facto standard for, for ML and RL? Or or do you think maybe Julia or something else will, will dominate before too long?
1: Mm, yeah, so this is kind of tricky. Um, languages like Julia clearly do many things right. Um, and I would love to like use them professionally but python just has so much momentum by now that um especially when we're talking about large companies with pre-existing internal infrastructure the the cost of switching to another language just, just might not be worth it so whatever it will be that everyone switches to it has to i don't know have some features that we don't even we can't even imagine right now. So yeah, well, I personally would love to use Julia. I I don't see people switching like globally to it.
0: So besides these things, like how do you see the role of research engineering um, changing over the next few years? What do you think that types of changes we might expect?
1: Um yeah, so um basically as i said the 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 line between research engineering and software engineering was blurry as it is so i think um these two job families will merge back into one eventually once um the next generation of students comes to the job market who who have the like relevant machine learning background Mm, but but you could say that's just terminology and whatever you call it it's the same job Um, the other thing is, um, in research scientist positions, I see a trend where the main expertise is really valued. So instead of having like pure machine learning research positions, you have, um, machine learning plus chemistry or machine learning plus biology. And I think, uh, we will have the same for research engineering or, or software engineering where you would have like machine learning plus compilers or machine learning plus distributed systems. And, and I mean, that's basically already happening. Like you have general positions, but then once you get hired, you start specializing because you just can't know any, everything. And, but I think that will be like explicit, explicitly expected from people to have this uh, dual expertise.
0: Okay, so some, some of the agents we've talked about uh, today, um Definitely burn a lot of compute, as as you mentioned. Do you have any opinions about uh, like what we can still do in RL with small compute, um, or do you feel like most of the interesting things are require a lot of compute? Do you think there's um, still interesting progress that we can we can achieve with with small compute? Uh,
1: well, I mean, I think people overestimate how much compute uh, even industry labs use. Um, so aside from, like, large projects like Alphastar and OpenAA5, um, it's still um, clearly more beneficial to use smaller environments which use smaller amount of resources just because you have um, faster results in your experiments and you can iterate faster. Um, so basically, I think any fundamental research, um, like... Uh, improving sample efficiency can be done on basically toy environments that would be accessible um, to any like researcher. Um, and then again another thing is uh, I think a lot of people aren't really utilizing their resources fully. So I remember when the original DQN came out um, having something like thousand samples per second on a single machine Uh, meant that you're basically a god of performance. Whereas now there are papers that uh, squeeze out like hundreds of thousands of uh, samples per second on a single machine with some clever tricks to hide the bottleneck of communication between uh, CPU and GPU. Um, Basically, I think understanding all of these uh, um, tricky bits and how Python itself works under the hood would definitely help um, that's also assuming that you have no control over the environment, like, uh, like with StarCraft. But, uh, if you're, if you're establishing novel research, then you can just re-implement the environment, uh, with vectorization, like with, uh, SIMD on CPUs or, uh, with CUDA kernels. In fact, uh, I think I recently stumbled on a paper from a couple of years ago by NVIDIA where they basically re-implemented uh, most of the Atari environment on CUDA. But for some reason, not many people are using it. And uh, I think maybe there's some inherent inertia in academia against uh, these engineering improvements, um, which, which is kind of ironic considering cases like AlexNet and GPT-3.
0: So in preparing for this episode, um, you mentioned another set of papers of that that you found interesting. Regarding Q-Lambda, Retrace, Acer, VTrace, and Pala, and as you mentioned, these are these are pretty big topics. Could you do you want to um, do you want to uh, share with us some the major ideas in the sequence and uh, and what makes this uh, the set of papers pre- of particular interest to you?
1: Uh, yeah. So, um, in short, the goal of those papers is to incorporate uh, returns-based approaches into off-policy RL. So the initial Q-lambda extends multi-step Q-learning uh, theory to support it. Um, then the retrace idea is um, extending policy gradients um, using truncated uh, importance sampling to correct for off-policiness. Um, then the Acer paper um, adapts retrace um, approach to the full actor-critic algorithm but um, acer still relies on the state action value um, estimator the the q function so finally in impala uh, the retrace is uh, adapted to um, the value estimator the the v function Um, and basically the reason i brought up these papers is i i just really like the the story that these papers paint Um, so they start off with a really highly theoretical idea and eventually arrive at a system that drove probably like the largest scale RL project, um, uh, AlphaStar. And uh, yeah, so I, I remember when I first found out about Impala, I thought it just came out of nowhere, but then uh, I would slowly go through the references and discover how uh, authors built up to it uh, through the years. And I found it quite inspirational as a junior researcher.
0: Okay. So to be clear, AlphaStar is using Vtrace and some other things. Do you, it's, it talks about off policy, but is it, is it really truly, um, off policy? Like, can AlphaStar learn from, from batch data?
1: Um, well, it's not quite, it, it's off, off policy ish. So it can't, um, wander off too far. It's basically learning on like, uh, t- two, two batches, uh, of the, of the experience, so it's definitely not of policy like uh, uh, you think of DQN or something, um, but it does have this of policy ish element. Um, uh, another reason there's this uh, element is because uh, the RL setup itself is highly distributed, so you can often have uh, situations where one experience from one agent comes way uh, after the network updated and so you have this situation where either you throw it out or you have to somehow adapt for it and and that's where things like uh, vtrace come in um, that uh, um, well important sampling is basically what drives this uh, correction.
0: So, besides what we've mentioned uh, here so far, do you have any comments or on um, directions in the RL world that that you find uh, interesting lately?
1: Um, yeah, so <laughs> there's a funny video from like ten years ago uh, by uh, Simon Peyton Jones, uh, wh- who's uh, lead designer of Haskell, um, and the video is titled "Haskell is useless." Um, basically, in short, uh, he puts uh, a bunch of languages on like a grid of useful useless and uh, he puts languages like c++ and java in the useful pile and then haskell into the useless pile and, and the reason he gives is that even though uh, languages like c++ could potentially blow up your machine if you're not careful um it doesn't really matter because uh, it's just so practically useless uh useful um, so where I'm getting at with this is that I think RL right now is the Haskell of machine learning world. Um, it has really strong and beautiful foundational ideas, but it still has some ways to go before becoming like uh, really practical for mainstream use. Um, so one direction that could take us there, I think, is offline RL, um, which uh, basically detaches the process of um, gathering um, the samples from the learning process. And yeah, um, I think offline RL is uh, something that could like um, open many doors um, in practice.
0: Roman Ring, uh, thank you so much for sharing your time and insight today. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. And I I know uh, our audience will really appreciate it too. Thanks again.
1: Uh, Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
0: Notes and links for this episode are at talkrl.com. If you like this show, I need your support. You can help in a few ways. One, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Subscriptions make a big difference. Two, follow us on Twitter at TalkRL Podcast. We love retweets. Three, give us a five star rating on Apple Podcasts. If you don't think we deserve five stars, let us know on Twitter what we could do better.